0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, May 30th, 2023, just back. From a tour of the eastern Mediterranean, I was in Turkey and I visited Ephesus, one of the great monuments of classical antiquity, perhaps the greatest monument for those of you who haven't been. You need to go. It's a reminder of the virility of antiquity. And interestingly enough, if you go to Ephesus, just above the remains of the virility of classical antiquity there's another monument uh, a monument apparently to the house of the virgin mary the christian period that of course came after antiquity and this house of the virgin mary is much more polite much more down to earth perhaps more repressive it reminds us of how different christianity is and its notion of sin and of self-control to the uh, nature of uh, antiquity, of uh, pre-Christian uh, Greek and Roman culture and morality. Uh, and as it happens, we have someone on the show today, Elise Lunen, uh, a Los Angeles-based writer and podcaster who has a new book out, which in an odd kind of way perhaps is trying to get us back before the house of the Virgin Mary, Elise Lunen's on our best behavior, the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be good. Uh, Elise is joining us from Brentwood, uh, that, uh, post-Christian community in Los Angeles. Elise, uh, uh, <laughs> yes. do we really need a book, uh, about, uh, getting beyond the seven, the, the seven deadly sins from, uh, Los Angeles, haven't you guys <laughs> been in that business? Uh, you, you're not very moral down there. Is that fair?
1: <laughs> oh, we need it more than ever. Um, women need this book. And it's interesting. Um, I love that that was where you were just voyaging around because so much of our current culture, so much of our minds, our interior psychology is still shaped by that early Christian period and what was passed on as a moral code that in my book, I argue specifically curtails and lives in the minds of women, the seven deadly sins. And I just want to say I wasn't raised in a religious house I um, at all. I had to remind myself of the seven deadly sins, but they actually weren't even in the Bible they're they're my friend nora calls them bible fanfic um and so and yet they have long tendrils their cultural edicts in a world where women are socialized and programmed for goodness and men are socialized and programmed for power
0: yeah it's an interesting observation this idea of of long tendrils i don't know what freud would make of that but um <laughs> Your this this Virgin Mary house. Let's go back to it. What happened? Do you think? I mean, this is your book is a contemporary cultural critique rather than an analysis of antiquity. But did something go wrong with our fetishization of female goodness and innocence, all bound around this rather absurd idea of the Virgin Mary having the the child of God?
1: Yeah so the 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 I'm sure many people who are listening or watching know some of the history of early Christianity, but as a religion, it really emerged only in the fourth century. That's when the New Testament was canonized so hundreds of years after Jesus purportedly you know lived and died, and you know he was wandering around in the desert with his twelve apostles. He wasn't A fan of a church, right? He wasn't, he didn't create Christianity as we perceive it today. And the sins, the seven deadly sins as we would know them today so sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger actually came out of the Egyptian desert in the fourth century at the hands of a monk named Evagrius Ponticus, who's also credited as an early father of the Enneagram, for anyone who knows about that system. And they emerged at the same time that the New Testament was being canonized. They weren't in the gospels as a set. And then they sort of voyaged around the desert. And what's interesting about them, there were actually eight thoughts, demonic thoughts, demon meaning more as a distraction of what would would distract a monk from prayer or out of, you know, relationship with God. They weren't, they didn't have sort of the hellfire attributes that we think of now. And then they voyaged around and in 590, Pope Gregory the first turned them into the cardinal vices. He dropped sadness. He dropped the eighth, he dropped sadness, and then he assigned them all to marry Magdalene who is referenced in the gospel as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons. So he assigned all the cardinal vices to Mary Magdalene, conflated her with the woman, this is in the same homily, conflated her with the woman who anointed Jesus's feet with oil, and then turned her into a penitent prostitute. And this is a reputation that she wore until very recent history. It was only in 2016 that Pope Francis turned her into the apostle to the apostles. She's really the first apostle. Um, but of course that honor went to Peter and she became a prostitute, but she was the one who was present when Jesus purportedly resurrected in the tomb. He gave his teaching to her. That was the gospel of Mary, which became a Gnostic gospel and was cast out and buried in the desert and only discovered in the last few hundred years. So yes, I think that there's, you could say sort of a plot to undermine the feminine and uh, sanctify or revere the masculine. And we see that to this day. And then you have, you know, Adam and Eve, um, a story about quote unquote, original sin, but that's, that sexual tenor really only came from Constantine. He's the one who made it, who attached it to lust. Um, So there's a lot of, mythologizing and storytelling regardless of what you believe that came after or i guess within the in the old testament before but but a recasting of history for people's purposes and aims and, and in terms of the virgin mary that too is a translation error potentially Beulah, which is the word for uh in in the old testament is used to describe a young woman it has nothing to do with her um Mary, her, her marital stature, her sexual stature, it was translated into Parthenos in Greece, which means virgin. So there's a lot of mistranslation, confusion, games of telephone. But what the result is a game of a, a a code of morality that specifically seems to curtail the lives of women. I don't know a lot of men who are castigating themselves for Having an appetite and sexual desire and wanting rest.
0: Um, well, the, I, I, I mean, maybe we can get into this a bit later. I mean, this this did apply to men or certain kinds of men to monasticism mm-hmm. and to the, the, the same the same uh, fight with bodily lusts of one kind or another. I, I'm curious, uh, Elise. What was life like then before Christianity as I suggested um, the 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 Greeks uh, worshiped women temple of Diana Diana mm-hmm. was certainly anything but Virgin Mary what was life like before this um, assault on 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 the deadly sins what you call yeah. deadly sins w- w- was it a more egalitarian world when it came to gender
1: well i think if you look at our, our earlier prehistory yes you look at some of these early cultures like hadol hayek in anatolia modern day turkey and you see evidence of a much more affiliative partnership style um world and obviously culture is different in different parts of the world at different times but um, I think a lot of the storytelling that we've, we've, we've um, told about who we were is with more evidence increasingly showing that it's far more complex than that. Women were hunters, for example. Women were Vikings. like All of these roles, the way that we've divided men and women into categories that are more aligned with how we live today, a lot of that is mythology. So before Christianity depending on where you are in the world you see um you see a more pantheistic polytheistic culture and certainly more reverence for the goddess right so the right as as um
0: as as the temple of artemis um while i was in turkey actually over the weekend erdogan got re-elected and Mm -hmm. He's obviously a very controversial figure, but I think one thing that can be said for sure is that he sees women in a much more traditional role. And much of the debate in in, in political debate in Turkey is between men and women about women's role. What is it, Elise, about monotheism that seems to uh, prioritize male interests over the female, and thereby? create this absurd mythology this absurd innocence of the female both in intellectual and physical terms is it just a scam i mean these these old men with (laughs) beards who are who want lots of wives who want women to bow down literally or otherwise to them
1: yeah in some ways i mean it's kind of strange that we would even gender god right that we have this god the father that we would assign a gender to some sort of deities in a way kind of anthropomorphizing and strange to me. Um, but yeah, I think when you look at these and we'll never know, right. We haven't had written history for so for too long, but you look at sort of much earlier cultures and you see these goddess dolls that maybe they were Barbies, maybe they were birthing talismans. We don't really know, but there was certainly a more reverence for the feminine, for nature, for the great mother. And then with the emergence of patriarchy, you start and the enslavement of women and the beginning of property and women as really first property. And then you see how the entire social structure in many ways is built on the obedience and subservience of women, both as enslaved people and also sort of as servants of the house, which is still with us, a consciousness that's with us in many ways today. And I think that, of course, everything is sort of shaped in this paternalistic God, the father, the man of the house, no more communal living, no more parenting. no more doing life together. Um, everything had to be sort of compressed and aligned in these patriarchal households that aligned with the way that the heavens were set up. And it's really interesting to watch, like even sort of Virgin, the Mother Mary, Virgin Mary, the way that she is like, you look at most of our cathedrals, it's like the feminine will not be repressed. And she is as revered and celebrated as any deity. And there are, you know, you think about some of the primary churches and cathedrals are dedicated to her. You know, we have this longing for both. And, um, and this need to sort of, I think for men too, to let the feminine come up so that we have balance. And this is the way that society is structured feels like incredibly unnatural Um, and like some weird incel fantasy and not at all how we're actually built to live
0: and love. How much of this is a building on the Nietzschean tradition of, of of viewing all morality in particular, his, this famous book, The Genealogy of Morality, is late 19th century work, which was the most direct and perhaps still uh, uh, aggressive attack on Christianity, associating Christianity with the ethic of slavery. Um, How much of this is is simply of your work is a continuation of what Nietzsche was arguing or what people like D.H. Lawrence argued in the the 20th Mm -hmm. century this you know in in books like lady Chatterley's lover are you trying in your work to get to borrow some more language from nietzsche to get beyond good and evil
1: i mean yes i think that these are not they're not particularly useful constructs and i think that they have us trapped in these by these this binary this fake binary of like good guys and bad guys and um and it's not Productive, it's not true, right? I think what we're, what every part of culture is trying to show us is that we are all in a continuum of shadow and light, good and bad, however you want to categorize or think about these qualities. And we can't assign these qualities to each other and certainly not to ourselves. They're fake, they're not real. And um, I don't believe that anyone is evil. I think people are complicated humans. Um, and so, but the way that we sort of cling to these descriptors and, or assign them to each other is so deeply unhelpful. And I think that for women, you know, taking it to modern current day, the greatest harm you can cause a woman in some ways is to assault her reputation. Goodness is seen as so essential to who we are. Good mothers, good women, caring, loving, nurturing, that to suggest that a woman uh, is bad, toxic, mean, ambitious, whatever it may be, is the worst thing that you can do to her. It is more shameful, more harmful than men committing crimes. It's really actually perverse when you think about it, um, the way how unbalanced it is. Meanwhile, if you say a man is bad, it doesn't matter because men are cultured and programmed for goodness. We are sorry for power. We don't really care about their moral qualities, it seems, in our culture. Um, so I think that they're just useless. They're useless adjectives. Um, and what we're really after is something much more deep and human these qualities of love, care, nurturance. Uh, honesty, truth, um, a lot more nuance, I think, in who we are and who we want to be and how we should be talking about each other.
0: How much, in your view, in in the book, uh, uh, Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and The Price Women Pay to Be Good, how much of this is bound up in the self-restraint of of bodily lusts of one kind Mm -hmm. or other, obviously sex, but other kinds of appetite too, is... This what your your genealogy, your own particular genealogy of morality, is it bound up with a uh, a form of of self repression, mm-hmm. of, of of fighting the body, of fighting our instincts?
1: Yes, very much for women. All of these these our appetites, our wants, desires we perceive those, or we're coded to feel that those are bad, and so the instinct to repress those impulses is so strong. You see this in the way that women feel about their bodies and talk about their bodies. I was bad last night. I need to be good today. The way that we chastise ourselves, you know, for having a bite of pizza, much less three slices. Um, We see this certainly with sexual desire, which is a particularly complicated one because it's compounded by issues of personal safety. And it is one of those things, like you see a woman dressed in a way that's provocative and then she's asking for it. And anything that happens to her at the hands of a man is her fault, right? So it's sort of a complicated stew of um, a lot of pressure on women to control our appetites, to keep ourselves small, to keep ourselves uh, really sort of complicit with our own repression because to get big, to ask for more, to want something means that we will most likely suffer repercussions. And it's really insidious and it each sin, it sort of shows up in different ways, but men are not expected to police themselves. They're expected to know what they want and go after it. And they're expected to feed their, feed themselves and feast and be lustful be greedy these are all tenets of masculinity but yet we hate them in women Uh,
0: i mean this is interesting but I, i wonder whether um at least this reflects america 50 years ago or certainly the california of 50 years ago last time i was in los angeles which was about two weeks ago um there are a lot of women flaunting themselves on Venice Beach and, and elsewhere. I didn't go to Brentwood where you live. Is this really the case? Mm. The, the young women uh, who, who associated with my daughter and son, I, I don't get the sense that this, these seven deadly sins are, are hanging on their conscience in the way they certainly did 50 or 60 years ago.
1: It's possible. I mean, I think with every generation, we get closer to our own emancipation. I think for food and girls, there is, I would, I struggle to find a woman who doesn't moralize to herself about food. I mean, you look at the rise of Ozempic and the amount of quote unquote normal weight women who are trying to get the drug to kill their appetites, to lose 10 pounds or whatever it may be it's pretty stunning and staggering sort of the rampant body dysmorphia that still abounds. And this instinct, despite a a push towards body positivity, just to watch all of that get washed away by access to drugs intended for people with diabetes. Um, In terms of the way that women dress, that's a really interesting question. And I write about it in the book a bit as the difference between sexy, and sexual. So women have been sexual objects always. We're sort of supposed to be procreative vessels and we're supposed to be desirable, but not desiring. And so I see, as I look at sort of young women whose bodies are more on display, I don't necessarily see that as a sign of liberation. I think women should be able to wear whatever they want. And I I fully support that. But I see it more of a performance of desirability rather than evidence that they are desiring and that they are sexual beings who are fully in their bodies. To me, it's just like another manifestation or expression of internalized patriarchy. Um, even though it would appear to be sort of a, a, a version of sexual freedom, I don't. I don't actually. See, I don't think the two are the same.
0: Do you think that this morality, when it comes to the genders, is a zero-sum game? In other words, if if women are to liberate themselves from your seven deadly sins, then men need to take them on. My sense in American culture these days is it's the men who are increasingly feeling more and more and more and more guilty, or guiltier and guiltier, and are perhaps uh, stewing in their own morality or absence of morality can can men and women together liberate themselves from this rather childish christian morality or if many or if women are to gain must men lose
1: no it's not a zero-sum game and that's a great question i think first of all the book is about balance about women letting their appetites desires pleasure joy come up And it's not about like, let's go be really greedy and lustful, et cetera. It's about finding balance and getting closer to ourselves by allowing all of this to come up rather than rushing to repress and suppress it. And then in terms of men, these eight thoughts, the eighth was sadness, and it was dropped from the list. And I included it. I wrote a chapter at the end of the book about sadness. Who dropped
0: it? The editor or you?
1: uh, Pope... Pope, um, Gregory, it just, it didn't make it onto the list of seven cardinal sins. It disappeared.
0: So we can blame the papacy for this.
1: Yes. It's the papacy's fault, but (laughs) sadness and the way that Evagrius wrote about it was um, as feminine. And I make the argument that fear of sadness is lodged in the minds of men and this severing from feeling, which is completely unnatural. I think the primary symptom of that is toxic masculinity. And I think that patriarchy is destroying boys and men, maybe more overtly than it is women. I think women have learned how to survive and endure in this system, but I think it's killing men. You look at deaths of despair, you look at suicidal ideation, you look at cultural chaos, it's at the hands of wounded boys and wounded men. And I think part of it is the severance from themselves, their emotions, feeling body, um, and severance from the feminine and the way that we insist that we have to turn boys into men, which is a very strange saying. And the way that we are culturally indoctrinating boys to be uncaring and unfeeling. I don't, I think that's just as unnatural as trying to convince all women that our primary mandate is to be good.
0: Elise, um, you're not an academic, so you don't necessarily have to formally address this issue. But as you know, amongst academics, there's this ongoing debate about whether gender terms are essential, especially given the, the trans issue now in, increasingly controversial, mm-hmm. and both amongst women and men. Um, in your view, you use these terms quite liberally, female and male and male ideology or male morality, female ideology. Are these baked in to, 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 to genders or is gender itself, in your view, and particularly in your, in your new book, uh, Seven Deadly Sins, is it itself um, uh, a, a cultural or sociological or even a political invention?
1: So I think that I think gender is real. I think you know I am I feel like a woman and I have I'm in the body of a woman and I think we recognize how that's distinct from sexual appetite or sexual desire. And then I think that what we're coming into and I think the contemporary trans movement is showing us is that there's this third level at play, the masculine and the feminine. And I would define balanced feminine femininity as nurturance, creativity and care and I would define balance masculinity as order, structure, truth and they are not attached to any gender they are energetic qualities that are in each of us. So I'm a woman who is most comfortable actually in my masculine I'm I like this is how I function in life. I used to run a large team I was a media executive I I spend most of my day in my masculine. I know a lot of other women who do. I also am perfectly capable of getting into my feminine. And so I think for men, this is more of a foreign concept, maybe a little bit scarier. But I think that similarly, men need both and need to spend ideally a balanced or equal amount of time in their feminine, being caring, nurturing, being attentive fathers, being artists, whatever it is, I think we each have these qualities. So you could look at our history and say, okay, maybe the first period was more matriarchal or more not matriarchal in the sense of having a dominant and oppressive hierarchy with women at the top, but more reverential towards the great mother or the goddess. Now we're in this patriarchal period and maybe the future is androgynous where our gender isn't that essential to how we show up in the world. And I think that that's what the contemporary trans movement is pushing us toward. That That could
0: be the the title of your next book, Elisa. The future (laughs) is androgynous. One uh, one, uh, supposedly value which you call a sin that you particularly oppose to is envy. What is it about envy that annoys you so much? Why do women in particular need to fight the idea that envy is a bad thing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I think envy is the gateway to all the sins. So there is strong cultural conditioning that women should subjugate their wants to other people's needs. Most of us don't have a model or a mechanism for even identifying what we want. It's too shameful. It feels selfish and sort of deviant to, to really clearly articulate it. And so envy you know, I was talking to this, to this psychotherapist named Lori Gottlieb who wrote, maybe you should talk to someone. And she said, this is years ago, something that really stuck in my mind and became a motivator for this book. She said, I always tell my clients to pay attention to their envy. It shows them what they want. Mm. And I asked her if it was gendered and she said she didn't have data, but that women are more, you know, have more shame about feelings that they think are bad. And so I have a theory that envy, our undiagnosed envy, because we don't know how to bring it up and process it and say, oh, I want that. I feel like a lot of the women on women hate or the way that women can be really hard on other women and say things like, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is? I think that that's our undiagnosed envy. And that it makes us so uncomfortable and we don't know what it is. And so the instinct is to project it on whomever is making us feel bad instead of saying, Oh, like I actually am envious. I really am envious of the fact that she has this incredibly vibrant, full career or that she's a really successful writer or that she has no problem speaking her mind or whatever it may be. It could be many tiny, small things. I think that. Because we're so not used to identifying or wanting and going after it. And because there's so much scarcity for women still, there aren't that many women at, in, at the top of businesses or at the top of government. So we see someone and we think, oh, she has that. It means I can't have it instead of, oh, she's doing this thing. I want that. I'm going to go after that too.
0: So, in other words, Elisa, a lot of people very critical of Instagram because they believe it creates envy. Uh, For you, Instagram is a good thing because uh, we we want to be beautiful, we want to be rich, we want to be this or that that people are potentially. But I think it's Instagram. Yeah,
1: I think it's better. It's better for us to say, "Oh, I want that." I recognize that as a wanting. Instead of saying, I don't know what this feeling is that that girl sucks, you know, or her book's terrible, whatever it may be, it usually comes out as sort of opinion and judgment rather than, oh, she's like pushing on a dream I have for myself. And it's really powerful to know what you want, because first of all, it will surprise you. Second of all, we don't all want the same things. And so when you start actually processing it with your friends, it can be incredibly illuminating information like deeply empowering and then also an opportunity to sort of support each other rather than try to destroy each other
0: you know the book should have been called on our worst behavior
1: (laughs) no because we're going for balance here
0: well it doesn't sound very balanced you mentioned uh I, i like it i don't want balance balance is boring um you were, you mentioned you used to run a big team. You are actually I think, the chief content officer at Goop, um, Gwyneth Paltrow's thing. I wonder whether the the wellness, well, one author I had on the show, Rina Raphael, you may be familiar with her book. She's written a new book, The Wellness Scam, uh, The Gospel of Wellness, Gyms, Gurus, Goop, and the, full, the False Promise of Self-Care. I wonder whether the morality you don't much care for has been somehow channeled into post-religious sort of female uh concept of wellness Uh, so i know you're not with goop anymore but certainly presented by uh uh platforms like goop
1: so in what sense that that somehow that's become like a new moral code
0: yes exactly
1: um i think wellness sort of is it's interesting i think a lot of what we see with wellness is a need, a desire to sort of understand or work out what's happening in the world and like work it out in ourselves. I think women are so um, connected, if that makes sense. So I think that there's some of that. I think it can certainly tip in that direction um, where there's this idea of dirtiness and needing to be clean, et cetera. But I think that what I've seen more with wellness in the recent recent years is that it's been sort of taken over by patriarchy and it emerged, when it first emerged, it was an answer to Western. My dad's a physician. My mom's a nurse. I grew up sort of in the hospital working in doctor's offices. I love, love Western medicine, but it's had many flaws and it's specifically failed women. And this is old. This is this idea of hysteria being connected to the wandering uterus. And all of these primarily autoimmune-based diseases that were thought to be entirely in our heads. So there's a long history of Western medicine first sort of like killing all of our healers and the witch, witch crazes of Europe, um, but then sort of telling women that they were crazy. And so what, the wellness movement was really powerful as an antidote to that of like actually women can trust their own intuition, et cetera. And then in recent years, what's happened is um, consumerism and like this whole bro wellness movement that's all about biohacking, Hmm. longevity, that's almost like an extremely patriarchal version of of what was originally a feminine movement of just like learning to listen and, and live with your body. And now it's like, how do we live forever? How do we like let's all wear continuous glucose monitors and track every morsel and every step. And it's kind of, it's become quite strange.
0: Yeah, it's very strange. And, and, and your book is a really, in, in its own ways quite political. I'm sure and uh, I'm sure you will take this as a compliment it will upset a lot of people i mean finally um i mean particularly uh, evangelical christians they're going to be you you better not give out your address Elise, online they will all be after you what what do you think of the the evangelical community and people opposed to abortion what are they going to think of all this
1: i mean god speed i just like the whole that movement, and again, i'm a I think of myself as a spiritual person, and I actually feel quite close to having gone so deeply into the prehistory and the early history of Christianity. I like really love Jesus, and I really love Mary Magdalene. I really love Mother Mary. And I love everything all the affirmisms that Jesus said. And then you look at sort of where we are in terms of, the evangelical Christian movement and the way that it has weaponized hate and control. It's like, w- you guys are off script. Like this is not, it's funny. Like someone on Instagram went after me and they were like, this is anti-God and anti, you know, the sins are important. I'm like, they're not in the Bible people. You know, it's interesting what we get attached to without actually understanding its provenance where it came from, how it's been interpreted and passed on and interceded and intervened on by man. It's really interesting what we choose to believe to, believe in, and how far we are from the original source. You know, we'll never know. Jesus didn't write. So we'll never know. These are all, it's all a game of telephone.
0: Well, it certainly is. And I think, at least you've done a great job uh, making sin attractive again. So... Uh... <laughs> We all are sinners, and it's not a bad thing, Elise. Thank you so it's much.
1: not. <laughs>